Welcome to this expert cast series. I'm de today delighted to be joined by Sen Wharton. We're going to be talking service accommodation. So Sen Wharton is a full-time property entrepreneur, actively investing each year in property and his own self-development to add increasingly more value into the marketplace. Sen discovered personal development and property education in his early 20s, and a few years later bought his in first investment property. Alongside a 10-year career spanning media sales and recruitment, Sen built up a rental portfolio of properties that eventually gave him the freedom to leave the world of employment in 2014 and start a software business serving recruiters. Sen's focus today is 100% on property, from active investing to business growth and mentoring through mastermind groups, with his business partner, Chris Dornan, Sen runs a successful serviced accommodation business, that's a lot of S's, and has a property portfolio spanning single lets, HMOs, service departments, and commercial property. He's on a journey of continuous growth, facilitated by serving others through property investing, teaching, and mentoring. Uh, Sen, thank you very much, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, pleasure to be here. We're gonna deep dive today into service accommodation and the purpose of this sort of expert cast part of this series is we're going to deep dive into various property strategies but before we go into the more property questions as such give us a bit more of a background uh, about yourself and what got you into property in the first place absolutely happy to so i guess like for many uh it, it doesn't start with a definitive um, knowing exactly what to do. And for me, if we go right back to the early career, post-university, post a bit of travel, getting into the, the proper job side of things, I was super fortunate being in a great uh, graduate job in media sales in, in London, great place to get started. And I believed, I used to, I used to believe, Rob, that climbing the corporate ladder was the way for me to go forwards. But even within the first year or year and a half of, of doing that and enjoying the learning and the experience and the fun that went with the kind of job that I had, there was still something inside me, I couldn't put my finger on, that was looking for something a little bit different, something maybe a little bit more, I don't know, maverick, shall we say, something a bit more entrepreneurial. And, and I just couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was, but it started a, a search for answers and looking for, I guess, other means of, uh, I guess, creating my own way in life. I think what I was looking for was really to figure out how to start a business. I just didn't know what kind of business or how to do it. But two things to answer your question, looking for answers to this kind of question that I couldn't articulate and discovering and committing to personal development. Those two things led me to the first few free seminars that you would see advertised in the Metro in, in London and, and things like that. Uh, and anyway, one of those, there was a book reference called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which like for many, that was the the kind of seminal uh, light bulb aha moment. Anyway, it got me reading further into the world of property. And what I realized now that I couldn't put my finger on then was that the whole journey I'm on now about becoming more through these entrepreneurial endeavors through, through properties, really what I was looking to find back then was how to become the best version of me. 
in business and financially and in my uh, relationship. And I discovered that property was that answer for me, how I could stretch myself um, mentally and uh, grow financial stability and get that entrepreneurial uh, taste I was looking for. And it took a long time for it to, to kind of click and me to figure out, but that's what got it started. It was searching for something else, that one book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, really getting the concept of property. And then it was, a, I think, a couple of years after. I read the book in 2004 and in 2006 um, invested in my first property after having read a couple of books about it. And that was kind of, that was property one off the ground. That was the journey started. That was me um, and my love affair for for entrepreneurship, for property, and for personal development. I've reached that poor dad. Reached that poor dad. Even that is that's the seminal book, isn't it? So many people say that that is the book that really got them going and gave them the confidence to go out and, and get the first one. So it's good to know that um, that's the same for you as well. Hundred percent. In terms of uh, briefly touching on that first property, was that first property serviced accommodation, or was that a, a regular bread and butter buy to let? Absolutely, bread and butter, buy to let, and it was a very, I guess, vanilla, straightforward, or one would think um, straightforward, um, a property, relatively cheap, one bed um, in uh, Cambridgeshire area, um, bought the... <laughs> Thinking it was thinking it was actually no that was my second the first property that was bought was actually in in London which was a long term investment but started off to be the home for me and my then girlfriend now wife so that was kind of property one in two thousand six and it was always going to turn into the idea of a buy to let but it started off being the home but the first true property to start contributing to the passive income was a little uh, seemingly cheap one-bedroom flat in Cambridgeshire. And uh, I'll maybe come and touch on it later, but without going into too much detail now, it's probably the worst property I've ever bought. But hey, it got me started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we laugh about that. That's the thing though, isn't it? Is nine times out of 10, the first property that we do it is not going to be the best one it's very rare to find someone that can hold their hands up and go hey the first property i bought actually turned out to be the best one because we're always learning afterwards aren't we so yeah interesting interesting that you say that let's fast forward a little bit and let's, let's start deep diving into service accommodation yeah. so what is service accommodation so in short um in simple terms serviced accommodation is i guess rather than it being referred to as a as a property strategy, it is more the case of it being a fully fledged hospitality business. Um, to put it into the simple uh, comparison to the difference from a buy to let or an HMO, you can take the same property, a house, a flat, a bungalow, and rather than having tenants that sign a tenancy agreement and have the place as their home, you can take that same property and treat it more like a hotel where you don't have tenants, but you have guests that pay by the night. That nightly price will include their accommodation, the building itself, the bed with fresh linen on it, and a degree of service around it. So they'll have all their utilities and they'll have all of their uh, Wi-Fi, etc. And there'll be varying degrees of service offered with that in terms of 
how the check-in's done, what kind of personal assistant is, assistance is required um, for someone coming to the area, looking to literally help people out on their uh, business trip, on their golf trip, on their whatever trip it might be. There's a, an element of kind of human service, if you will. But quite simply, if we compare it to someone's long-term home, if they're renting it, versus someone's short-stay accommodation that is... It could be one night, it could be three nights, it could be three months, but it's not their main residence. And the people staying there are not tenants, they are guests. Uh, and as such, they are, I guess, the, they, 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 they live to in the property to a different set of conditions and rules than a tenant would. And it very much puts um, the property owner or the SA operator on a different kind of relationship than a landlord-tenant. It's a business operator and a customer relationship. And the the guest is coming to stay based on uh, a terms of hire, if you will, more like them staying at a hotel. If, if, you, if you're badly behaved and you, you um, smoke in the bedroom of a hotel, you're going to get a fine like you would in a service department. Uh, likewise, a hotel could ask a guest to leave that very day if they were if they were um, bad mouthing other guests and, and displaying antisocial behavior whereas that'd be very difficult to do with a tenant um, so a couple of distinctions but generally uh, the key thing I didn't point out which I should have done is that that the price someone would pay to stay by the night is definitely at a premium versus the the monthly rent that someone would pay to to live in uh, a rental property as their main residence. So the revenue a property like that, a service accommodation would generate, uh, can be much, much higher. But obviously, it comes with a different set of operating costs and a, and a business behind it. Um, hopefully, that, yeah, contrast the two enough. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I'm sure we'll touch on a few examples mm. in a bit as well so to, to give people an idea of the sort of numbers that you know, people can generate on service accommodation. Service accommodation, what got you into doing that particular strategy? Because that's, I know you mentioned about hotels, but if we were coining the phrase service accommodation, that's not a phrase that's been around for, you know, years and years and years and years and years. It's quite recent. And what got you into exploring that strategy and got you started in that strategy? So having had behind me, uh, 10 plus years uh, of experience in the single et and HMO investing space. I had uh, hit a bit of a plateau. This is going back to 2015 and doing things like reading good old YPN and seeing lots of great case studies of of, of entrepreneurs scaling pretty quickly in property. I was always thinking, well, well, why not me? I've got a good set of skills behind me now. Um, I've done a couple of joint ventures with like family members, and I've scaled up some nice conversions, done some better deals. But I just felt like there was a ceiling that I'd hit. I'd come to a plateau. I needed to look at uh, other avenues to help what money I had left from investing go further, or indeed look at investment strategies that didn't require big capital outlays because I had invested a lot of my own personal cash and was deploying what access to joint venture cash I'd had in longer term refurbish, recycled type models with uh, with HMOs. So to get to that answer, it came about, uh, I guess, the um, 
inspiration and insight from a particular mentor that I had sought out to help break through this kind of glass ceiling. So this was 2016, the turn of 2015, 2016. I'd been doing the slow painful growth in <laughs> in property on my own isolated up, up in scotland um so 2016 i decided things had to change i got a business partner in chris dornan and we sought out mentorship and after toying with three or four different potential strategies um finally realized we had to focus on one thing to get real traction and move things forward and we chose to get started with service accommodation on a rent-to-rent basis because a it was a strategy that appeared to be generating vast amounts of revenue with a lesser proportion of capital input required and because i was looking for something new outside of simple buy to let i thought here's something that if we get it right we could scale and we're in a marketplace uh, we thought at least come on to later we thought being close to edinburgh um how could we go wrong so there's a couple of things lining up it was the mentor we were working with a strategy it was very much flavor of the month the darling of property at the time um all the right uh, criteria for us in terms of um great revenue potential uh, less capital input and combined with the fact that we're close to a marketplace that in theory should work um it led towards this is the, the time for us to get started with it. I mean, service accommodation has been around for well over 20 years, maybe just not in that same terminology. And um, yeah, it, it was fast becoming very, very popular um, at that point in 2016. For, for someone listening to this, you mentioned a couple of times there about you don't need as much capital to get into it. You mentioned rent-to-rent service accommodation. So um, would I be right in saying that there, there are two ways to do this? Is Number one, you could go and put a lot of capital into a property, turn it into, you know, a HMO or so forth, and then, then rent out a service accommodation, or you can go down the rent-to-rent route. Can you explain what the rent-to-rent route is and, and how that works, just so Absolutely. someone can have an idea of how they can get started doing doing the same strategy? Yeah, so as we opened our conversation, when you're asking to explain a little bit about uh, what, what characteristics the service accommodation have and I gave the contrast between renting a single let and the service the accommodation unit that could generate a lot more revenue well what rent to rent operators are doing there Rob is they are um, capitalizing on this uh, they're kind of playing arbitrage kind of like having an exchange rate between uh, two different countries where, where goods can be exchanged for um, uh, different values and what we're doing is taking a property out of one market, so the, the long-term letting market, and repurposing it with nice appealing furnishings and uh, marketing and a service around it, and then reselling it to a different market, which is a different audience who will pay a different price. So the same property one day I might rent uh, out, if it was my own, at £750 a month. That, that's the market rent for the two-bed property in that location. And then the next month, all being well, I won't go into the detail, but all being well that it is permitted to do in that area, you know, it meets the right uh, local authority criteria. It's allowed to happen without planning permission, etc. Um, I could take that same property that is let out long term uh, for seven fifty a month and present it to the service accommodation audience or the people refer to it as the 
the Airbnb audience or the Booking.com type audience, people who are looking for property for one, two, three nights or even three months, short short stay, and sell that on a nightly basis that might generate three times as much as the monthly rent. So what a rent-to-rent operator does is essentially play this um, off the two marketplaces to, to rent something out at one price and relet it in another marketplace at a different price and make margin in the middle. So it's a case of this has been done in the commercial space all over the world for many, many years. It's done with uh, equipment. It could be done with plant hire, machinery. It could be done even with hotels. A lot of the hotels that you see, the brand, uh, Marriott, might go and rent a building off a developer at a set price. And then they'll put their branding around it and their lovely service elements and their staff and their food and what have you. And then they'll resell it to the holiday-making business traveler marketplace at a premium. And that's that's rent to rent in, in its simplest form. Um, you, might, you might do that with, with cars, with vehicles. It's simply borrowing something from someone at one price and reselling to someone at a higher price because you're adding a premium of some sort in the middle. You're, you're, you're adding an extra degree of value that justifies that, um, that premium. So hopefully that explains it in a couple of different ways that might twig, twig and resonate with different people listening to it. Oh, that's a great explanation. Love how clear and concise that is. It's really, really good. It's taking the same product, repackaging it as such for a different market. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's perfect. In terms of if, if people wanted to get started in, in this area, um, how do you go about picking an area? Because I imagine it's different from, say, doing a regular buy-to-let. So how would you go about finding an area that would potentially work for uh, service accommodation? Well, okay, I, I could go quite... I have to stop myself going deep into this because I've not long ago written a book about it that but, um, <laughs> I'm not going to take the time to regurgitate or shamelessly plug or anything, but uh, just to try and stop myself going into a rabbit hole with it for, for your listeners, that um, I have personally felt the pain of getting it wrong, and I've got no shame in sharing why. Um, I'll try to touch on this lightly just to share two different scenarios because you talked specifically about location and most people associate service accommodation with serving the tourist market holiday makers and business travelers maybe white cold workers in the financial services sector or business consultants it contractors that kind of thing but in fact service accommodation serves many 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 more wide and varied and perhaps little known markets besides those. But because most of us, when we get into it, think that a service accommodation is is the traditional holiday let, where people go for romantic breaks or family gatherings or weddings, etc., etc., that's normally where our thinking starts. So people would normally think, pick an area that's got the draw of attractions of some sort. Now, in a time like this of, of us having this conversation, I don't know if this will, you'll want to bring into context that we're in lockdown right now. Um, <laughs> but clearly, that, that, that market is non-existent right now. There is no tourist market at all at the moment. So again, I, I'm not going to go into the, the depths of that. But 
one hypothetical scenario is someone makes assumptions based on there being traffic or footfall from holidaymakers and travelers and so sets up property in an area that they believe will meet that holiday demand and it's what we did in the center of edinburgh um that's because we, we didn't think we could go wrong there at all um it's the second largest financial services center in the uk it's got the edinburgh festival every august for a full month uh, not this year though um it, it's got so much going for it and we know massive massive all year long tourism so we based that decision rob on assumptions and on their belief that there was a, a demand through tourism um that's one way of looking at things and i wouldn't recommend that's the way people go down um having done that and felt the pain of it not going our way because we built that business off of uh of guesswork um the other way people should look to go is to identify where the demand is first and that could be again i'm not going to go into huge detail but just to um point to some ideas it's often the fact that there are demand sources for short-stay accommodation staring many of us right in our in our face, right in front of us, but we can't see the wood for the trees because we have a belief that service accommodation is for holidaymakers and, um, and tourism and business travelers. But service accommodation might be serving uh, an area within a walking distance from a hospital where it's a massive, massive training hospital where, where nurses and doctors come to train and they come in on a coursework type basis for X amount of weeks at a time and then change with someone else and they need short stay accommodation. Or for the families visiting their their patient loved ones uh, are going to come and stay for the period of time that their, their loved ones in the hospital. And that's like a mini audience in itself. Then you'll have another demand um uh vertical which might be the contractor space which you know some people refer to as the the muddy boot brigade i I don't necessarily refer to them as that because there's there's all sorts of different types of of contractors that work in infrastructure and major um builds of power stations and the like the whole spectrum of them but that makes up a huge huge audience of the paying customers that book out short-stay accommodation, whether it's for a Monday to Friday thing or for three months whilst they actually get a project up and running and then maybe hand off to a different trade. So that's just two different types of audience that's very different to the tourist going um, either city break seeking or coastal uh, vista seeking uh, audience. And so the point I'm getting to here, Rob, is that service accommodation can work in in many many um seemingly um uh if i can use the word unobvious um locations but it's all got to be uh determined and informed by first understanding who's the audience that you're going to serve that's how someone should start off looking to identify where to actually set service accommodation up it doesn't start with oh here's a nice property now let's see what I can do with it. It's going further upstream and starting with where is that rich vein of traffic? That Where is that recurring audience that I can serve with this type of property time and time again? 
hopefully that's a really really big point so hopefully that lands and resonates with people listening to it because i i share it with with with, with volition and passion because i made a mistake with this and got it wrong and it's a costly mistake but i've got no regrets because it enabled us to pivot and um and do it the right way and I, i'd rather people who are thinking about this strategy do it the right way or not at all uh, and that's the purpose of having this series and you know which will lead to you know books further on down the line is so people that are thinking about getting into certain areas of property can you know learn from the mistakes that others have made and you know maybe they decide to work with you moving forward that would be fantastic if they look to get into that strategy in terms of what you learned then from Edinburgh to say service combination isn't something I do and I must admit I you know I would have looked at somewhere like Edinburgh I'm familiar with it and gone yeah Edinburgh Festival great tourism loads to see and do I, I just would have thought that would have worked so what was it if we don't mind going into that in a little bit sure. of detail what was it about it that didn't work there were multiple factors. Um, so to draw out a few, we entered the marketplace with one bedroom apartments in prime city center locations. So again, it was all based on assumption rather than really truly knowing and understanding our end customer and, and why they're coming and what they want and what they would pay and so on and so forth. So we entered with a fairly vanilla product. So remember I mentioned we started with, with rent to rent. So we'd, we'd rent a one bedroom property off the open market and um, spruce it up a little bit, but within you know restricted parameters because it's not our property, it's someone else's. And then remarket it, repackage it and put it out there. And, you know, that, that was okay in the summertime. Anyone can make money in city centers in the summertime. The demand is so great. Um, where you come unstuck is out of season. And come the winter of that first year in service accommodation, we'd grown quite quickly to four properties in a few months. Um, you know, it's, it's not gargantuan growth, but with a short space of time to have four properties out there with the potential to do a few thousand pounds in revenue each per month, it's pretty big. Uh, but what we'd also done is laden ourselves with overheads. So when you take a property out on a rent-to-rent basis, you're guaranteeing paying that monthly rent. So straight away, no matter what happens with your guest bookings, at the start of every month, you've got four rents going out of your bank account and then the council tax and the utilities before you even welcome your first guest into the property and that's that's often the the kind of sticking point that will get people stuck um you need to have that buffer in the bank account to start with or get going from day one with great bookings where we became unstuck was after the the summer spike where anyone could make money it was then a case of noticing the the lack of demand noticing that we are a fairly vanilla product nothing special about us in a in a sea of many 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 offerings in a market where the stock or the supply of service departments in edinburgh was growing like wildfire because it really was a la mode flavor of the month. You know it. It was going crazy. And so the number of properties in the marketplace were tripling and quadrupling in the space of 12 months. 
Now, there's, there's enough demand there in the summer to absorb it all. Coming into the quieter months, the good old economics of supply and demand are such that prices come down. And there's only so far we can drop our prices when we, we're a business paying for professional cleaning and linen and some consumables to welcome a guest and, and, a, and a check-in service that we paid for as well. We had them managed. So our cost was higher than the mum and pop offering who were maybe using a former buy-to-let with a very low cost base. They weren't paying market rent, they're paying a mortgage, which was a third of what we were paying in rent. So we couldn't compete with that. So I've got there now the factors of supply and demand, pricing, we're competing in a commoditized marketplace with a vanilla type product. When you come to thinking about who comes to Edinburgh on a short stay basis, you've got your romantic breaks, so it's a weekend, You've got the business traveler, and in the first few months, we had much fewer business travelers than I thought, than I assumed. And you have maybe some backpackers and um, some family stays, etc. And the reality is they're coming for two to three nights. And so in the space of a seven-day, well, a normal week, you might have two or nearly three changeovers rather than if I'd had one guest coming for a full week. So those changeovers, what that meant, Rob, were the costs were going up. The cost to clean the property fully and put the new linen in, having to pay that twice a week or three times a week rather than once a week, again, costs going up. And put into the whole context of things, Edinburgh's growing hotel offering, so hotel rooms as well as the accommodation, that's probably the closest... Um, offering to a one-bedroom flat so what have we got to offer above a hotel room yeah we've got the kitchen you can use that's great but if you think about the cost per head my one-bedroom flat can sleep a couple in double bed and maybe another couple in a pull-out sofa bed so max four people but it's not the most comfortable the hotel room can sleep a couple in a double bed with maybe quite plush surroundings and they can lower their price below what we were for the night so we were kind of in this no man's land, and that's the kind of picture I'm painting. We weren't offering anything special, nothing unique. It wasn't uber high end, nor was it super no frills cheap. It's kind of in the middle, no man's land, tons of that available in the marketplace. And as the demand comes down in off season and in the winter, and we can't compete on price, a business is going to suffer. And so we learned those lessons very, very quickly. Um, but that story I've told, which is our own story, can be commonplace for many getting started when they build a business based on uh, hope and assumption and this kind of thing. So if you were holding someone's hand for the process starting over again, if you were holding someone's hand and you were going down the rent to rent route, what would the process look like from establishing where to approach a landlord to the end product what's what sort of step-by-step -step process do you need in order to get from a to b yeah well what i can do is um share with you the exact process that um so i'll use anecdotal yeah, storytelling then through what, what what i did the second time around so th there was i call it the tale of two service accommodation businesses that was the first one and it failed but i learned a lot from it i learned painful uh 
lessons, but I took, I took them with me and then pivoted the approach altogether. And so what I would recommend, or if I was handholding someone now, is that when previously I thought you start with the property and then you figure out how to market it and fill it. Now, don't even bother thinking about a property to start with. The most important thing to do, first of all, is start with identifying an audience. Find a demand source, like who's actually going to be paying to sleep in the property you put up. And so when I pivoted out of Edinburgh and started a new business in service accommodation, we knew things had to change. So I made it my business to go and find a demand source first. And I chose to go after that contractor um, marketplace first and took a bit of time finding a demand source in the form of, uh, at the time it was a, a company booking property at a vast scale on behalf of multiple contracting organizations and it was having those conversations first because i was ready to set up the property wherever the demand was within reason that i could get there and, and do the work i wasn't bothered about having to be edinburgh city center it was like i'm going to be told where to set the property up and i'll be told what kind of property and the price point i need to be meeting and the service elements i need to be meeting and so that's the starting point rob it's find that demand source it doesn't have to be contractors it could be any number of different audience groups or a blend of a couple, um, whether it be focus on the hospital or focus on the contractors or focus on something in your local authority or something unique in your area. Um, I was speaking to someone the other day who, who'd found a demand for from uh, uh, people working in the dockyards of a, of a, of a port, harbour area that they live nearby. It, it depends what is... I guess is unique to your area that you could and your your contact and your networks that you could figure out so back to my little anecdote my example i found the demand first and uh interesting i actually started looking to hire out someone else's property an existing holiday operator's property to satisfy this booking need. It was going to be for about five months for six guys. And what I found, Rob, was that no one in the area that this demand uh, was for, none of the holiday operators had a long enough stretch of availability to accommodate six guys for five months. But in going about that process, I got put in touch with a local farmer. So this answers the question about approaching the landlord, etc. I got in touch with a local farmer who, interestingly, does have a couple of his own holiday lets, but also has a couple of long-term rentals in the shape of some, some farm cottages that were coming available. Got put in touch with him. He's more than happy to have me take it off his hands because um, it had come available. So timing was good. And what I actually did was went and did a viewing, took pictures, and I, I kind of did a virtual tour through pictures and my descriptions to my prospective client. And I actually got the whole booking teed up and set up before i agreed to letting the property that's how someone should do it and so i had things essentially agreed over email and i then went ahead with getting it furnished and literally the day after i had the furniture i moved in six contractors for five months and the business was profitable on day one versus the horrendous experience i had in the city center um so that's the ideal approach that would be what 
people would want to strive for and go do and it absolutely is possible i've done it several times with a couple of different um sectors and i know other people who have done it as well and that's great and what i love about that is as you say you've you've gone from the uh, sort of the heartache and the frustration of not doing it properly first time and you go right right, these are mistakes that have been made let's we correct that and then second time it's well, and third and fourth by the sounds of it is you know sounds absolutely fantastic so you just learn from your mistakes not repeated them and voila you've got a successful service accommodation business that's it and it was exactly that it wasn't a flash in the pan thing based on assumption and guess and, and hoping it was a proper business that we could scale and we have scaled and that year that first year that we we set that up in 2017 we turned one property into that first year in it, seven or nine uh, to, to then 12, pretty quickly because it was being reverse engineered from a, a very real solid demand source that we got to learn and understand how to service that particular need. I mean, I, I see us now as being in the business of providing accommodation solutions because we, we go and look for the, the problem or the desire that we can then solve with our property. And that's the way to go about it across any strategy, I believe. Yeah, reverse engineering is very, very useful. And the perspective of how you think about things, as you've highlighted, is, is, is just incredibly useful. I think if we can, more people done that, then you know it's not as hard as people can make out to be, but it's you know, challenging, it's very challenging along the way. It's just life, that's business, that's you know whatever you know area of property we're in. A lot of people that would be familiar with service accommodation and, you know, I've said, forgive myself if this does sound a bit daft from my perspective. If people look at a buy-to-let, people will look at a buy-to-let and go, well, that's C3. That, you know, in, in terms of classifications of property, that's C3. Um, from my readings on social media and books and here and there, some people will say, if you're referring to service accommodation in hospitality sort of area, that's classed as C1. So how do you... As a service accommodation operator, how do you deal with that? Especially if you're in an area where there's maybe an Article 4, then you've got to deal with a landlord. How do you come across any objections that you get from those situations? it, It will be informed by the local authority area's planning rules. So the first thing that, because anyone who's in service accommodation, I'm pretty sure most people are going to want to do it in a way that they can sleep well at night and stay on the right side of legislation. And one of the thing, the first things that people would want to do is have a phone call with the local planning officer in their local authority to understand if that local authority area allows service accommodation without changing the use class of the property. So for example, in Edinburgh, when I first got started, we, we just literally went gung ho. Before I'd done a course, before um, I mean, the course did come uh, within a few months of us having, having got started. But we went and jumped in feet first and got started. But I later learned that officially, you really would need to get planning permission to use the flats as service accommodation in Edinburgh. So. It started off in the early years when I got started being a grey area, and it's very similar to London and Glasgow, so the major city centres. Um, but it became clear after maybe a year or so that 
really you should be applying for change of use. And that was one re- another reason why we chose to exit the market. It, it didn't sit comfortably with me to be kind of flying beneath the radar. Uh, many still do it. Um, Officially now in Edinburgh, licensing has come in place, which is similar to HMO licensing, but for serviced accommodation. So um, to go back to your question about the C3 and the C1. So in England, where you've got your residential properties as C3, you might be in a local authority area where there are no um, stipulations on the use of that property having to change in order to use it for service accommodation. So that family home or that flat can legitimately be used for service accommodation. No problem at all. If you have an existing C1 property, so it's, it's, it's a commercial property, it's maybe a guest house, whatever. You know, we have a guest house, we, we bought one of those as well, then obviously no problem. You'll feel more uh, bulletproof long-term to operate service accommodation uh, out of that property uh, without having any comeback from uh, local authority or or anyone else who may wish to object. But most properties, most residential properties, at least in suburban or countryside areas, typically wouldn't have to change the use class to be used for service accommodation or the single let. It's typically going to be in major built-up city centres where there could, not always, but there could be um, legislation in place from the, from the council to say, oh, you would need to apply for a change of use. And then it's their decision. You may not get it or you may get it. If you do get it, then great. You're, you're kind of bulletproof. You can you can do it. But that would always be one of the key things that an SA operator would want to get cleared up before they get started so you can have peace of mind to do it properly. So if I was a landlord with a, a property in, I don't know, let's just pick a random place, Dumbarton in the west of Scotland, for argument's sake. So if I'm a landlord with a property there, I've got it on the market for four, £450, it's a two-bedroom flat, and you come along to me and say, you know, what, how would you, if you knew that you wanted to put that into a service accommodation unit, what, I mean, what would you say to me? Would you disclose to the landlord what you were looking to do with it or again would you 100%, just... 100 yeah yeah every single time that we have approached whether it be a landlord direct or uh an agent a letting agent we started out getting our properties through letting agents 100 percent disclosure and it, it has to be done there's absolutely no point in in um trying to play smoke and mirrors because you would need things to be valid from an insurance point of view. There are other things to take into account from uh, the landlord would need to ha- be made fully aware of what they might need to discuss with their uh, lender if they have lending on the property. There's a number of different things and you need to cover that off with the landlord so that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and everyone's happy. And I've never had any... Um, uh, yeah, no one's ever been upset about us being up front to say this is the, the purpose that we want to use the property for. They can then make a decision and say, no, that's that's not what I want, um, and that's fine. Then we've got it out of the way, we can move on to the next one. But what I found with it is that for those landlords who are open to essentially us taking their property out on a corporate let basis, because it needs to be 
on a corporate let essentially or it's on a management agreement um, we're not renting properties on a typical residential type tenancy it's not like an ast if it's on the a letting agents agreement it's going to be a corporate let where the subletting clause is taken out and, and we can choose who goes in and out the property or it might be a different type of agreement like a management agreement with a landlord direct but they'll always know um, they'll need to inform their insurers so the insurer knows the use that it's being um, used for and we'll always get buying additional public liability insurance on top um, but interestingly many landlords will be delighted by the fact that professional companies taking on the rental for two years three years and they're going to be professionally cleaning it every week because of course uh, a residential tenant doesn't pay for professional cleaning every single week <laughs> true <laughs> very 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 true that well i mean number one that philosophy is fantastic and that makes perfect sense when you're dealing then with letting agents, for example, it, do the same principles apply? So I can imagine that some letting agents might throw their toys out the pram if you're trying to take the management away from them. That's a very uh, crucial distinction that needs to be made up front. So when I was first finding that first property and second property in Edinburgh that we spoke about um, not so long ago, I found typically that if I was going to look up properties that looked attractive online on Rightmove, et cetera, and Yourmove and other uh, estate agent sites specifically, I'd call them up and inquire about uh, making a viewing. And I started out explaining what I wanted to do when I was there viewing the property with the agent. And what I found was that out of every 10 properties, there might be as many as half or nine that would be like, that's not the way we work. I don't want to be doing that. And so to save time, I started on the phone very quickly and explicitly explaining, this is our intention, what we want to do with the property. Many would be like, oh, that's fine. Great. I'll just check off the landlord and then you can go view the property. So great. We're, we're shortening then the, the, the time lost. Um, but what I understood is that the letting agents fears of us taking their business away from them are totally unfounded. Um, but I realized that because they're scared of it, after a few kind of clunky, fumbled phone calls and conversations, I realized that I need to address that objection right up front because it's certainly not the case. Why would we want to bite the hand that feeds us? And you know what, Rob? All it took was to find one enterprising letting agent who really quickly grasped and understood that if he works with me, he can let 10 properties to me very quickly and know he's got a good tenant. But if he works with an individual, he can only let one property to them or the couple. He can only let one property to them. He's got to keep going and finding more and more tenants because it's a one-to-one -one ratio. You follow? Versus with me, he can have a relationship with me and let many properties. And so when a letting agent understands that, you could have a – a supplier, a partner, a, a friend for life with that because you're making their life so much easier. And it comes back to this entrepreneurial way of thinking that what once we understand what some of the pain points of these um, other businesses are and we can help solve them with our offering, then it's simply a case of communicating it effectively, which 
I wasn't doing in the early days, but when I learned how to cover those things off and communicate it effectively, believe me, it's not a problem. They, they will welcome your offering with open arms. Every landlord may not welcome your offering with open arms, but once the letting agent understands it, then they can have the conversations on your behalf and start bringing properties to you. And yeah, we, we've had nothing but phenomenal feedback in, in the last four years from landlords that have properties let out to us because they've never experienced tenants like us before. That's good to hear. That's, 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 that's really good to hear. And I, I love the point you, you place about the communication is, as you openly admit, it's a couple of fumbled calls and then it's getting on that sort of pain point or pinch point and going, well, actually, well, this is, don't worry about that. This is how that gets solved. And using the idea of, you know, certainly leverage from a lettings agent point of view, you know, yeah, why keep running around, running around where if you find two bed properties in this particular area, yeah. give me a call, I'll take pretty much take off your hands, subject to viewing, makes their life easier, makes your life easier. Perfect sense. Going on into a couple of, uh, got to have some numbers, got to love some numbers. So if we go on into a couple of examples of deals that you've done, now you don't have to give away areas yeah. or anything like that. You could be as bland as you want in terms of that. But if we give a couple of examples of some really good performing property, just so people can see what is achievable by utilizing service combination. Yeah, so I, I can give a, a range, uh, a spectrum. Um, that very first property that uh, when, when I pivoted the approach and talked about getting a, a farm cottage uh, direct from the landlord that was occupied from, from day one. So uh, there is a property that I rent off the farmer at £800 a month for a four-bedroom cottage. Quite rural, but it's the right location for the demand that I found. Large power station being built. And that the price point I'd figured out with the client, they were looking to achieve £20 per man per night. And I could get six men in the property. So that's £120 a night for the property for everything included a weekly clean, like full house clean. And so I, I had to factor in the cost of cleaning linen hire and utilities and the Wi-Fi and paying the rent, the council tax and looking after minor maintenance. Anything integral to the property like the uh, the boiler going or leaks, etc. that's the landlord's responsibility. But uh, small damages to the property caused by my guests, I'll take care of from our revenue. So very loosely then, if you've got a month that's like a 39 month bringing, what's that, 3,600 odd a month or so in gross booking, you then need to be stripping out 800 pounds for the rent, 100 and something for the council tax. Um, our utilities are quite high because it's on an LPG gas tank there being rural, and that's more expensive than mains gas. Um, so at the end of the day, when all said and done, running at full tilt, that property will generate £1,500 of profit or more. It, it's phenomenal. And that can be quite mind-blowing for, for someone to comprehend when they first come across service accommodation. But then we need to take it into account that's only mind-blowing if you can fill that property to that extent. And so that's why we based our model around filling the property first and for as long a stretch of a period of time as possible. And we were able to stomach 
three weeks of no occupancy at certain periods in between, etc. Um, on a different level, just outside Edinburgh, a two-bedroom flat um, would be a typical rent of about £750. And the kind of nightly rates there would put us into the bracket of 90s to 100 or so. And so in the fully occupied month to one of our contractors, then we're going to be in the realms of two and a half, 2,600, 2,700, 2,900, and taking off the cost of those properties, a bit more proportion of cost, but you can still see how you get to a thousand pounds a month in profit um, from a fully occupied property to a contractor. Now, those two bedroom properties, if they're only being occupied for 15 nights of the month, um, it's not going to be very profitable for us. Those kind of properties will need to be at the 20 nights a month plus. So there's a balance, and people will figure this out when they, they play with the numbers of, um, of of properties they might look at in the marketplace. That We went from the one bed in Edinburgh City Centre where the rent was as high as possible. So if you think about the kind of the unit economics of the business, what numbers do you have to play with to get your output of your profit margin? We went from high rent and only one bed space, real bed space, double bed to, to let out and monetize. That makes it very expensive per head for the guest to stay there. And going into a two bedroom property, it's either two double beds, we would always have twins in each room so you can have four people four individuals single beds or link them together with zip and link beds to make two doubles but four people sharing a two-bedroom property that's splitting the cost four ways it's going to be much cheaper per head so it works out economical for economical for the guests um so those kind of properties the break-even point might be at 55 percent or so because the market rent's still quite high. But getting up to bigger properties, you can start to see how the rent's going to be a lower proportion of the revenue you can generate if you let out all your bed spaces. So there's a two-bedroom property um, showing how it can make 500 to 1,000 pounds. Fairly straightforward. Four-bedroom property in the countryside with six people in it, making 15,000, eight. 1500 1800 pounds and then we jumped into the the biggest property we have is a guest house that um five bedrooms has 11 individual beds and this we would typically rent out to contractor groups a whole teams of guys working on a large uh power station site so now we're talking about 220 quid a night or a bit more and in the month over six grand or so in, in revenue. And when we take the costs of that, so our finance costs of about a grand and the running costs of it, we are typically then left with about half of it as profit, um, which is you know three grand profit off uh, a property that we had um, bought a little bit below market value and with JV Finance uh, it's turned out to be a tremendous deal but it's not the first property we went for we only invested in that after we we proved our model and proved our marketplace um, but that gives that gives a range two bedroom property uh, four bedroom and a five bedroom and anyone getting into it would largely be within the, that kind of spectrum of the the two beds to to three four five bed properties I love the fact that you've demonstrated 
a very good example using the rent to rent methodology and then a very good example using the fact that you actually purchase the building as well so it's both, oh, yeah. both both of those models can work which is which is fantastic well it's starting to close down slowly we'll do some quick fire at the end but what would you say and you could be as biased as you want it's completely up to you what would you say there the advantages are what advantages and disadvantages what would you say the advantages of doing service combination are in comparison to other different things that people can do in property advantages in comparison so the challenge is i'm an idealist rob and i like to have my cake and eat it so i see service accommodation as an essential strategy approach to business and entrepreneurship in property that, that any property entrepreneur would want to have access to because it can it can help you be so so nimble and flexible in your investing um the reason i say that is because the fallback for any property that's residential is, is going to be a long-term let straightforward single let but any property that someone creates from a commercial conversion or um, they've newly refurbished a property without changing much about it, the service accommodation business can resolve sticking points at different stages in the life cycle of that property. You can't let it for whatever reason, short term, um, it's the, the market for the HMO is not there. You can advertise and sell the beds as a service accommodation. So knowing how to do that is crucial for helping people who who run and own property assets. Um, it's crucial for helping get out of, of sticky situations. Um, it's crucial for giving other exit strategies. It's, it's crucial for knowing how to pop up and set up a brand new business and revenue stream in uh, perhaps a new location to go and test the market um say you know on the rent to rent basis before you've committed to, to buying so i think it's an absolutely beautiful um way of using property to be flexible to potentially maximize revenue but there are benefits to it so the first question was about what are the benefits to it over other strategies so there are many landlords who have buy-to-let property that they may have originally bought in their personal name and are feeling the pinch this year especially and completely next year when the full effect of the Section 24 reduction in interest rate relief takes grip. And what people may not know is that by using a commercial trade in that property, which would be serviced accommodation, it's treated as a commercial trade, that then neutralizes the impact of Section 24. So for the portfolio landlord of four or five properties or even two properties in the personal name and the, the the tax implication of section 24 really taking its toll on the personal bank account of that landlord one of the ways that landlords are mitigating the impact of that is to keep the property not sell it into a limited company at great expense not do anything different other than use it as serviced accommodation all being well that they can from a lending point of view and local authority planning, etc. But once those boxes are ticked, the property can be used as service accommodation and the full cost of the mortgage interest can now be deducted against the revenue of the, the property once again. So there's a big benefit in itself. Um, there are other benefits people might see 
some people may not like having tenants and the, the issues and the challenges that tenants bring. Uh, I referred to it a little bit earlier. Um, people, I, I've had properties where tenants, so-called tenants, have left the property with damage. They've ripped out units, moved them around the house. They've left with arrears and with all these damages. And so it's incredibly costly for me to put it right just for another tenant of the similar ilk to do something again. There may be uh, landlords out there who are just sick and tired of tenant issues. Well, with serviced accommodation, you don't have tenant issues because you don't have tenants. You have guests and they put one foot wrong and you're fully within your right as the operator to politely ask them to leave the property and never come back. Uh, The other thing is they pay in advance. So they pay before they are given access to the property. So if they're staying for two weeks, you've got 14 nights of £90 a night or £100 a night paid into your bank account. So there is no such thing as rent arrears when you manage a service accommodation business effectively. There are many, many other avenues to it, but I think the big ones are, well, there's there's a good few tax benefits as well. Um, without going into the detail of it, you can access something called capital allowances, which is kind of like a tax credit. Um, that are given to commercial use properties. But to summarize, you've got the um, neutralizing section 24, you've got the greater revenue and profit potential, you've got some some tax benefits, completely legitimate tax benefits, and you've got a tremendous amount of flexibility and additional exit strategies to property deals that you look at. So when you might have a, uh, a developer or investor looking at a certain empty building thinking what can i do with this office building or this pub or this whatever it might be understanding how to run service accommodation might give another backup to purely looking at it as an hmo or single let property it might give it another income stream for part of the property that might be able to diversify that multi-unit property who knows that's why i say it's such a great help get you out of trouble or give you another uh, a bit more flexibility but definitely one to i guess add on in time once you've already mastered and understood the other thing that you've started with rather than trying to do everything all at once would you say then in terms of getting everything up and running so you, you've touched upon you know a multitude of things you're responsible for all the bills etc etc linen i uh, providing all the toiletries would you say that's once you've got those systems and processes up and running, like your, your booking manager and so forth, then it's relatively straightforward. Basically, it's the effort in getting all of that set up. And once that's set up, as with most properties, give or take relatively straightforward. Yeah, with, with this, because I speak to a lot of um, investors getting into it for the first time. And I will always challenge someone's thinking think deep and hard and, and, and long about it, that every single property strategy that people hear about, and they will hear about on your podcast, they all work. They all can work very, very well. But the key for anyone out there listening is to do their very best to pinpoint how is it that they want to be involved in, in their property business and think about what are the kind of activities that they want to be doing each day, each week, what are they going to enjoy doing and what, what would they really hate doing? And 
when they understand exactly that and why they're doing it in the first place, they'll have a much clearer filter and decision-making criteria for is service accommodation right for me? And that's that's why I'm answering this in a kind of roundabout way. It's not to avoid the question, but it's to, to highlight clearly that service accommodation is just the most perfect way of being in property for some people, and it couldn't be worse for other people. And as a little example, There'll be some people who love, love, love the thought of getting a property looking aesthetically wonderful. So the marketing pictures are like something out of an interior design magazine and getting the marketing piece done will just play to their highest values and their interests and their strengths. And they love the idea of the revenue potential that it can generate. But start talking about communicating with guests daily, dealing with little questions about how to work a microwave, dealing with little maintenance inquiries, managing cleaning and linen, and they'd run a mile. And being really clear and open with people for them to think long and hard. Now, they don't have to do all that stuff themselves. Of course, there's ways around it. But it's just the reality of it's not a set and forget kind of strategy if you're getting it set up yourself. You can absolutely pay for people to do it all for you. But that will come with a premium. We're talking about if someone's going to do it themselves, they need to be fully prepared to, to do all those things and be happy with the act of doing it, and they'll reap the benefit from it, 100%, 100%. But if they know deep down in their heart of hearts that is oh, the opposite of how they'd see themselves in property, then maybe HMO or single let or commercial or developing is the way for them once they know what they want to be doing each day. And I'd also add to that, is let, let's not make it any more difficult than it should be. Think about not just what you like doing, but where do your strengths already lie? Because everyone listening to this will have their own unique set of strengths and competitive advantages based on what they know and who they know and who's in their network already. And it might be that for people getting started in property, they're actually, the answer staring them in the face. They could get started in SA tomorrow because of who they know and what they know. Or it might be they could get started in HMO investing because of who they know and what they know and where the demand's coming from. All those play a part in people deciding where to get started and why and what's going to give them the right kind of uh, ingredients to be in it for the long term so they can sustain it. Yeah, know yourself and sort of then work into a strategy that benefits your strengths makes perfect sense and that's what I think a lot of people just rush into it because they see all the the shiny pennies to start off with and they just look at them I mean I'm a numbers person but people look at the numbers and they'll go oh I can make x amount of pounds a month doing this let's go and do that then they get into it and realize actually this is <laughs> this just isn't me um so no very very uh yeah very poignant to say the least I know you've shut it away from our answering about the disadvantages, but I mean, it must, I guess, as with many things, there's pros and cons. So if you, would you, what would you say would be the disadvantages with doing service accommodation in comparison to other strategies that are out there? Yeah. The disadvantages would clearly be on the operational side of input. So if we take the scenario where you're doing it yourself, the setup of the operations and the manual daily doing of the operations. When I say operations, I'm talking about uh, the marketing and advertising the property, the, the filling of it. So unless you've got a long booking, 
you're you're starting the month on zero every month, but yet you've got outgoings every month. So you you will be facing a feast or famine uh, situation month in month out because, in contrast to the long term let, where it's tenanted for the year, you got it set up and you forget about it. The commercial lease, five years, seven years, and then forget about it, other than checking in on the the maintenance of the numbers, etc. So the the daily input very very high if you're doing it yourself because there's so many moving parts to it it's a real kind of octopus of a business with lots of tentacles to it and if that plays to someone's strengths and their interest then fantastic but i know that it just will not for many it will drive some people nuts or they might think i could do it with one or two but then think right i want to scale my income now if i get to 10 could they feasibly manage 10 properties themselves with all these different moving parts to it? It might drive, drive some people nuts to deal with the kind of uh, the guest inquiries and communications, the, the the check-ins that have to happen, the afterwards, making sure it's clean and tidy and guest ready for the next one. So it's fully involved if you're going to do it yourself. That would be the disadvantages, I think, to some people and, and dealing with uh, the fact that the properties in themselves, uh, they, they need the love and attention of someone. It doesn't have to be you, but it needs that they're definitely guest ready. You need that confidence that your product is guest ready. And if it's not, you need to be able to take it on the chin and, and react to it. So I guess the biggest disadvantage there, Rob, is showing very clearly that you've got labor intensive and it's it's starting the month on zero unless you've got a nice long booking versus the do your refurbishment, get it set up, get the thing let. And if you've got a great tenant, they might be there for five years. Then you might need to give it a, a recoat of the paint, etc. So it's two very different types of input and activity, but also two different types of potential return. Um, but far and away, that, that would probably be the biggest disadvantage in most people's eyes is what's actually required to make the thing run. That's fair enough. And I guess it's a great perspective to... To have to hopefully be people listening or indeed reading this are going to look at that because this is all about this series as well it's all about providing that reality as well oh, 100%. It's not all, doesn't have to be it's not all smoke and mirrors it's you know what is the harsh reality of doing each of these strategies and i love the fact you're straight to the point this is good this is not good this is what's going on and you know i think that's incredible value for the people that are listening and reading to people this. who know me know that i don't sugarcoat anything at all yeah <laughs> I mean, as I say, any one of the property strategies that you'll cover off and discuss on your podcast, every single one of them can work incredibly well. But obviously, that comes with a caveat of who's doing it and why they're doing it and how they're doing it. It's gone to horror stories because people will love a good dose of extra realism and horror stories. I know you've been, um, you know, very great of your time and going through the bad experiences that you've had in terms of an overview of the service combination business when it first started in Edinburgh. But are there any other particular property horror stories to just give people an extra realization of well, basically shit that can go wrong? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, you don't okay, have to so mention, you don't have to mention actual names, by the way, if you want to, you know, change your names and find absolutely. No, <laughs> we, we've got obviously the, the one that has been of most, most recent, which was obviously getting knee deep in four properties, rent to rent and realizing we would built, the business on foundations of sand so we covered that one off um but because you since you asked for another one i did mention um the very first property i ever invested in as a obvious 
uh, first outing for passive income attempt has been the worst one by far. It was the, the smallest property by physical size. It's a one-bedroom uh, flat that I bought because I thought it looked cheap. So we're talking now 2007. Um, it's, it's peak boom time in the market. Uh, I'm in London looking for uh, a passive uh, passive income addition. You know, not so long after I'd read The Rich Dad Poor Dad book and had some savings from a summer job I did um, as a student. And so that money was precious to me. I'd, I'd worked hard to make that money in sales. And using a book um, that highlighted the hotspots for yield um, in the UK. So I'm sure everyone listening to this one will know what I mean by yield, but essentially that the best returns uh, gross rent-wise versus the, the price of the property. It highlighted a number of locations and um, Whiz Beach in Cambridgeshire was, was one of the areas highlighted. So of course I went on a little shopping trip with my um, a little bit of knowledge from reading a book and uh, my savings ready to, to buy something. And literally, I, I was just so wanting to buy that A property that I saw something once, didn't ask too many questions. I didn't, don't even remember if I saw many other properties that day, but I put the offer in, bought it. I thought I did well getting a few hundred quid off the price for my first uh, <laughs> buy to let. And I could not sell that property probably now. Maybe I could get it just about the same price now for what I bought it at. And we're talking... 13 years later. Seems crazy. Um, what I didn't appreciate fully was I bought a leasehold property. Um, so here, where I am now in Scotland, we don't have residential leasehold property. Everything's freehold, typically. Um, whereas I bought a leasehold property, and that property has been fraught with issues for me. And for the price I paid for it, fairly low, in the realms of 60K, and the the return, so in a in a decent month, it might be 150 quid a month cash flow. That is just swallowed up with the amount of management service charges from the um, the management company who who runs the freehold, and that has been uh, the property from hell for me because of that. And not to go into all of the detail stories, but we've gone through things like rent to ma right to manage type applications that have been thrown out and we've had to end up paying legal costs for the, um, the freeholder and management company. And what it feels like, I know you said don't mention any names, so I won't, but the management company are really and truly like modern day criminals. And I know there'll be many out there who feel my pain because there are quite a lot of um, block management companies who've gotten away with uh, the kind of uh, fudging of figures and ill treatment of, of, of leaseholders for too long. And unfortunately, too many leaseholders just don't have the energy or the knowledge or the wherewithal to, to deal with it. And um, as a supposed hands-off investment, <laughs> I'm here in Scotland, there is down in, in Cambridgeshire, it is just a pain. I will I will get it sorted over time, but it's the one property that I just wish I never had. But it's the first one I bought and so there's a little bit of a a little bit of a I don't know admiration and love for it, but oh, it's wearing. So if anything that would be the one that of all the properties I have 
it's the cheapest and the worst <laughs> oh thanks for sharing that. i think that's you know it's it's good that you got that you know initially it's good you got it over the line and you're able to take you know many lessons from it i do think that most people there is that little bit of sentiment for the first ever one that they bought uh, regardless of how good or bad it is quickly moving on to quick fire then and i'll be as some of these questions are quite straightforward in you know in my opinion but let's roll through them anyway when people talk to you about service combination what are the most common concerns and queries that you hear from people um when, when they talk about it it's generally always um how do i get how do i get my first property but as i've pointed out i tell them you're starting in the wrong place don't look for the property look for the demand Okay. Uh, in terms of your service combination portfolio, what does it look like at the moment? Some rough numbers of how many units, etc., would be useful. Yep. We are in the low 20s, and that is largely all of ours. We've got a mixture of rent-to-rent -rent and owned, so we've purchased a few. Um, I've also converted two of my historic vitalettes into service accommodation so in total our management company looks after about 23 properties and there's a small number of those are for clients so not our properties there are other investors who we have maybe helped find properties for and we manage them in our local area and so we have a management company that runs our own properties but also a few for outside investors and they've gone through top tips already and they've been really useful. If you had to re-summarise, what the top three tips be for people wanting to get into service accommodation? The top three tips. Um, so, first of all, start with why. As in, why do you want to do X, Y, Z? And it can apply for service information or, or anything else. But as it relates to your property investing business plan and your goals, what is your big why? And does service accommodation fulfill whatever it is you're, you're looking to uh, achieve in terms of your own personal growth, your, your business acumen, your financial goals, et cetera, et cetera? So it's the big why. And then does the particular strategy fit with that? And thinking about what you already know I talked about your, your own unique strengths and competitive advantages, what you know, who you know, what is about your area, because there might be something very unique about your area that brings a certain type of audience every month, month in, month out, that need this kind of accommodation. Um, so the why, um, start with your demand. Don't start with the property and work backwards from that demand. and. Yeah, I would say follow the model that I that I, I, I talk about. I, I've I've got a, a model I've I've coined called the Dice model, which is the start with demand, then identify the solution for that demand, get some commitment up front. So in other words, pre-sell the property like, like I did. I got it agreed in advance, and then execute on the solution. Go and deliver it and do it well. Learn and refine, and do it again and scale. What would be the worst piece of property-related advice you've ever been given? The worst piece of property-related advice? Hmm, that's a tough one, because I can't recall if I've got had any 
particular, pro- probably the uh, <laughs> the confidence of the selling agent to have bought that first property I ever bought. <laughs> but um, thankfully, nothing has, you know, there hasn't been any advice from a particular uh, trainer, mentor, or um, legal advisor or broker that has been, you know, horrendous. Um, I I have a pretty good, I guess, filter for um, defining what's right for me and what's not right for me. And a lot of that's come about from, from learning about what my own highest values are and knowing what to leave off and, and what, what to stick with and, you know, which people to, to work with. So I cannot, for the life of me, pinpoint any one particular bit of advice where someone might have said, go and do this or do that, and, and it's been horrendous. Only perhaps to, to say that maybe someone might have said, do this or do that tactically before actually figuring out what's what's really important here. Like I said, start with why. So if someone has said, go and do this strategy, the only bad advice may have been they may not have validated or checked it off with actually, why am I doing it? And what are my existing strengths and competitive advantages and how can I make it van- take advantage of that now to go faster? Or actually, is it a massive mismatch? Because as I said, every one of these strategies, they all can work. But for each individual, it will be a unique set of circumstances. What would you say the one thing you've learned most from in being in property is? Like your one takeaway lesson from all your years of experience in, in being in property? I guess it's pretty personal to, to me, but hopefully it'll resonate with lots of people. I'd say the, the big thing I've learned after having, I know in the intro you said that um, you shared that I had a, a period of time where I went and started a software business. The thing I've learned for myself is that for me, property is the primary vehicle for me to achieve my, what I've identified as my life's work and life's vision which is to become the best version of me in each area of life and whilst that i feel is unique to me i'm sure it's going to resonate with many many people out there but for me i've realized that the the act of being in business and in entrepreneurship in property it's enabling me to stretch myself from a business point of view to constantly be learning and playing this game of entrepreneurship, which I love. Property is allowing me to do that, but it's allowing me to feel fulfilled in now helping other people through things that I can teach and mentor with and I've written about. And not just the people I teach and mentor, but the end users of the stuff that I can create and put into the marketplace. And then internally within my own household, the freedom to hear. Be, be at home from work, chatting to you, uh, be working from home, I should say, and not just because it's in lockdown, but I always do. I always work from home and have the freedom to not be restricted to 20 days annual leave in the year and to have the freedom and time with my wife and kids and my extended family. It all comes back to property. And that's the biggest thing I've learned, Rob, is that um, it's not just about the financial side of things. It's not about the the assets and, and the money. It's about the whole picture of a fulfilling and rewarding 
life, everything for me, I can link back to and can center around property. Uh, I wouldn't have noticed that in the early days or seen it that way, but I 100% can look back in hindsight and see that now. This is exactly the thing I couldn't put my finger on when I was thinking I wanted to climb the corporate ladder but felt confused and wanted to do something different. It, it was this feeling of continuous growth, becoming the best version of me, and property is the answer. That's what I've learned. And would you have any final words of encouragement or wisdom for people that are listening to this? Words of encouragement or wisdom. Uh, okay. I'll borrow someone else's words rather than, than my own because one of my favorite quotes comes from good old Jim Rohn. I'm sure you've read of lots of his work. Um, I'll do my best to try to paraphrase the quote because I may not get it all right. But it's one of my favorite quotes because it resonates so much with the, the kind of pivot point from failed essay business to successful essay business. And the quote goes along the lines of, to have more, you need to become more. For things to change, you have to change. For things to get better, you have to get better. For things to improve, you have to improve. When you change, everything else changes for you. So along those lines, I paraphrase roughly the, the entire quote, but in short, for things to get better, you have to become better. That quite simply would be the words of wisdom for people to take and interpret in their own way what can they do to become more that's, that's great fantastic and really thank you for sharing that and uh, really means a lot and not just to me but to, to people listening and just before we go into how people can find you how people can get in contact with you etc etc you mentioned earlier on that you've written a book a successful book just tell us a little bit more about that and how people can find that and then how people can find you in, in by other means as well sure thanks so the book i wrote just came out at the end of last year it was launched in december so it's still very very recent the first book i've ever written and it's called predictable property profits and the backbone of that book is all about the the methodology that I shared just a moment ago the DICE formula, which is, I guess, forged in the, the act of failing in service accommodation initially and realizing that, like I shared in that quote, for things to, to change, I need to change, and def defining a new approach to property investing to start with the, the demand first. So in the book, I share in detail the story behind pivoting out of a failing business to starting a profitable business on day one within a space of time about 45 days and walk through each of those steps of, so four simple steps on basically how to remove guesswork and get more certainty in your property deals. So I use that very true story of service accommodation, failure to profit to show where the the formula came from and how it was applied and then go through the rest of the book showing how it can be applied to pretty much all the property strategies so so now this is the approach that that chris and i live by and breathe by and, and stick to whether we be investing in residential long-term letting property or looking to develop something or in the commercial space and very much in the service accommodation space so it's here's a formula that 
can de-risk your investments, take guesswork out of it, so you can have more confidence in it and certainty. And here's how you can apply it across a number of different strategies. So predictable property profits, it can be found on amazon.co.uk and uh, also from with a link to the book from our website, uh, devonierplus.co.uk. Perfect. And any other means that people can get in contact with you by any other, any other forms of social media? Yeah, so I'm most active on Facebook. Um, it's quite simply just my name, Sen, T-S-E-N, Wharton. There shouldn't be too many of them. Um, and I've started recording a few more um, short videos to go out on our Adero YouTube channel, which are explainer type videos. Um, I like to have a mix of both um, mindset and practical walk rounds of properties we've done, conversions we've done, essay property, etc. So still very early stages, um, but the main format is through uh, Facebook and I put out a long form written blog post every week. I've been doing that now for uh, three and a half years. So the blog website is aderoproperty.com. And if you want that in your inbox, then I've got a weekly newsletter where you've got my written blog post, plus I curate three other, uh, I feel, useful resources, whether it be news, insights, ideas, uh, some personal development stuff, all handpicked to help the property investor, property entrepreneur become more and be more successful bit by bit. So I put together that every Sunday and send it out. And that can be found at adaraproperty.com. Perfect. And for the benefit of people listening to this, either on the audio book or on the podcast, all that will be in the show notes for people reading this. Just look beneath the text. All the links will be in there. Well, send but really, that's a great deep dive into service accommodation, advantages, disadvantages, how it's worked for you and how people can get started. So just again, uh, thank you for your time and thank you for explaining that strategy and all the best for the future. Thank you so much and all the best to you, Rob. Thank you.